Hello, Shirley fans. For the last three years, Jason and I have been bringing you the stories behind all of your favorite movies from the 80s, but today we begin a new series. In 2016, the Duffer Brothers introduced the world to Stranger Things. This show not only changed the way we all watch television, but surprisingly also truly impacted the music we listen to. From Africa to Running Up That Hill, Stranger Things has brought back songs of our past and introduced them to a whole new generation. So, the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast begins a new series bringing you the stories behind the songs of Stranger Things. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Surely Can't Be Serious podcast. Today, D, we are diving into episode four of season one of Stranger Things and the music involved in this episode. Yeah, we can't fail to mention our executive producer for this episode. That is your friend who pointed you out to the Chick-fil-A worker on yes. our last episode, Mr. Blaine Peterson. Mr. Blaine Peterson, as I was standing in Chick-fil-A, the manager came up to me and said, are you the celebrity Jason Colvin? <laughs> and I was so confused and he had just gone through the drive through so. Well, and now he is our Patreon subscriber. He will be able to listen to all of our super secret episodes where we go through the one hit wonders of the... 80s and beyond. So if you, dear listener, are interested in becoming a Patreon subscriber, just go to patreon.com slash Shirley podcast, S-U-R-E-L-Y podcast for as little as five bucks per month. Five dollars a month and you get all of our bonus material over there. We've got some great episodes, one hit wonders that we've done the 70s, we've done the 80s, we've done the 90s, and they're a lot of fun. They're a little bit shorter and they're kind of bite-sized Little snackies, if you... Yeah, but still the in-depth stuff that you expect from the Shirley guys, right? And if you go up in tiers, we have other prizes and gifts that come along with being a higher monthly subscriber, so feel free to do whatever you can. If that is outside of your price range right now, don't forget to go and leave us a five-star rating on the podcast app and a friendly review, and if you do that, you'll be entered into a contest to win a custom engraved tumbler for no charge at all, just... To fill something out telling us how awesome we are. That's right. We're ready to give away some more tumblers. It's been a <laughs> right. while since we've given away tumblers. So yeah. give us a good review. Five stars. You know, maybe we'll send you a tumbler. Before we get started, D, last episode, we talked about David Bowie and how he became friends mm-hmm. with John Lennon. Yeah, those two guys wrote a song together called Fame, which I mentioned was the number one song the day that I was born in 1975. That's exactly right. David Bowie's first number one hit, by the way. Well, I came across an image on the internet uh-huh. I was going to tell you about. So it was John Lennon yeah. and Yoko Ono. Yeah. And let me tell you something. They needed to use the Sirius 20 code <laughs> because they were out of control, D. The mid-70s was a time for a lot of hair and a not a lot of grooming. <laughs> oh my gosh. And now is not the 70s, ladies and gentlemen. Now is the time where you need to look good. I saw the picture that you're talking about, and I it was a throwback to our Appetite for Destruction episode because I thought, welcome to the jungle. <laughs> Guys, you don't want to jungle down there. You don't want to be John Lennon Harry or Yoko Ono Harry, for that matter. True. You want to be nice and trim looking for your lady. Manscaped.com has these wonderful products. They make it easy. It's completely safe around the very sensitive areas. It's good stuff. We're giving you 20% off. Go right now and buy this for Christmas. It's great. Please go to manscaped.com. Use that code SERIOUS20 because that's how they know we sent you. And you will get not only a discount, but you'll help us out in the process. That's right. All you need is love, but Manscaped doesn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Whack it. (laughs) Whack it. All right. 
Are we ready to jump into the songs of Season 1, Episode 4 of Stranger Things? We're ready. We're ready. Let's go. It's only two songs in this episode. Yeah. Two. The first song that you hear is so monumental. It is by such an influential band. And I have to say, I'm so glad that we are doing this because had we not done this... Joy Division would just have been this band that I've heard of, and that's all. But wow, what an incredible story. What a legacy, an influence that they've had over countless bands. Our friend James Buckley said there weren't a whole lot of people that listened to Joy Division or bought that first album, but the ones that did all started a band. I know, that's a great quote, right? Yeah. I thought it was funny how you called James Buckley... And unbeknownst to me, I called James Buckley and I was like asking him, I was hitting him up on Joy Division because I didn't know who they were. Right. And I'm like, so so how did you find them? And, you know, if it's, they're not on MTV, I don't know how anybody finds anything. But yeah. so he's like, well, when I was talking to D, I told him about this. I'm like, wait, <laughs> D called you already? Yeah, we're, we're both tapping the James Buckley well. That is the truth. Here's the, here's the way he got involved with them or how he found them. I thought uh-huh. this was interesting. Yeah. He had read a rock magazine where the guys from Faith No more credited joy division as being an influence on them so if you've ever heard or like faith no more joy division is kind of their musical family it was incredible because i didn't beat around the bush i didn't do small talk i'm like hey i'm listening to joy division and i need to know where the love is i need you to help me understand the love because i liked the music but the ian curtis's voice is not my taste it's right weird it's man. A, it's a little bit strange but i asked him that question i mean he didn't hesitate it was boom well here's what happened and went right into it and then afterwards he texted me he said i just laughingly told my wife you called to ask me about joy division and she said you've been preparing your whole life for this moment <laughs> It was seamless. He was ready. He was ready for oral arguments right then, right there. I, I like how when you said I didn't beat around the bush, I was ready to jump right into another Manscaped ad, <laughs> but we'll hang on for that for next time. Yeah, so let's talk about Manchester circa 1974 or so. Okay. So Manchester now has some soccer teams, a couple of them, Manchester United, Manchester City. My kid's a Man City fan, and it's a place that people know. Back in the 70s, it was like Detroit without Motown. Just not good at all. Not a good music scene. They talked about how the only interesting act around was Gary Glitter. And... If you know the Gary Glitter story, that's a word that's almost not safe to say. Yes. You, I know. You've right? heard his music at the football game, but you haven't heard that story. And someday we will come we gotta back. we got to cover that story. We yeah. will come back with the Gary Glitter story, but not today. All right? When you started talking about Manchester United, I yeah. thought it was going to turn into a soccer podcast. I was going to tag in <laughs> David Wright and check out because I know I know nothing about soccer and less about Manchester. So keep going. All right. So Manchester in the 70s has no good music, has a lot of poor blue-collar, son-of-a-gun guys out on their luck until June 4th, 1976. (laughs) Yes. on June 4th, 1976, there is a double concert in the Free Trade Hall in Manchester by none other than the Sex Pistols. The punk band of all punk bands of the 70s. I mean, the trendsetters, the torch carriers, whatever you want to call them, these guys were there. And it's kind of like the Joy Division album. Like, 
Not a whole lot of people were there, but everybody that was there started a band. Yeah, we talked on our 90 days in the 90s about concerts that we'd like to time travel and go see. Yeah. This apparently was such a huge concert. People who saw it created a band that started Change the World. Well, here's kind of the impression that I got is that, you know, if you're listening to Deep Purple or Led Zeppelin back in that day, you're like, whew, those guys are incredible. I can't do that. Right. But if you go watch the Sex Pistols and you're a 17-year-old kid, you're like, I could do that. Right. And these guys are, I mean, they're a huge bill. The crowd is going crazy. Crazy for these guys. And so there were a ton of guys in the audience that thought, I can do this. We can form a band. I can find people and we can form a band. <laughs> and also in the audience was this reporter named Tony Wilson. Okay. And Tony was from Manchester. He had gone and gone to Cambridge and was an educated guy, but he was into sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but he was kind of the yuppie guy for that scene. And so he was on, he, he, he had these little news bits that he's on that was kind of like kamikaze articles, like it would show him hang gliding, throwback to our first <laughs> episode. Yes. Um, him hang gliding and fortunately he wasn't on a tall cliff but he was in front of a barbed wire fence and so he immediately went to the barbed wire fence did an interview on like some karate people and immediately was taken down to the mat you know like hi i'm at- oh and there it is he's hey, down I like guys like that yeah. yeah he he was a lot of fun but he was one of the guys who was at that sex pistols concert in 76 so some of the other guys that were there ian curtis bernard sumner and peter hook by the way yeah before you go any further yeah Peter Hook, I immediately, I'm like, if Peter Pan and Captain Hook had a child, they would name it Peter Hook. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for being here for all of our preschool listeners. We can keep on <laughs> spiking the football. Peter that Hook. is a great name. Uh, it is it's a great a name. name. It is a very memorable name. Peter Hook. Keep going. So Tony Wilson decides he's going to form a record label. Okay. He enlists some help from some other people. And they put together this record label called The Factory, right? By this time, these guys who have seen the Sex Pistols play have put together their own bands. And by now, we're going to have this big contest in Manchester to figure out who's the best of these bands. And it's like 17 different bands. Okay. And the last band to be slated in this contest was The Negatives. And the guys from Joy Division were upset. They were like, we were supposed to be the last act, not these guys. Because the last act is really kind of a key spot in a competition. You want to be the finale, right? Okay. And so they start arguing with the guys from the negatives. They're arguing with the staff. They're saying, we're supposed to be last, not these guys. And at some point, finally, like Ian Curtis is this very mild-mannered, artsy kind of guy right but he's not small okay like he's he's you look at him he's definitely a head taller than the rest of the guys in the band apparently he kicked down the door to the negatives dressing room and said we're playing last or i'm gonna cut your effing head off and they said okay you go last and that led to them getting signed with tony wilson's new record label and they were the driving force behind that record label that's interesting their original name was warsaw it's a throwback to david bowie's song warsawa throwback to david bowie that we covered on the last episode he's going to come up again he's going to come up again and it's it's not in a good way but just put a pin in that put a pin in david bowie but yes they were highly influenced by david bowie and they were not what you would call punk they were inspired by the punk but these guys had moved into an area of music that later on we would dub it post-punk Yeah, 
Now, you know, you talked about how these three guys who formed Joy Division were at that concert. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. The next day, like after that concert, they're like, we've got, we got to do this. Like we're doing this. Mm -hmm. One guy borrowed 35 pounds from his mother to buy a guitar. Okay. The other guy's like, well, I'll, you know, he'd been mowing lawns or whatever. And he went and bought a guitar. Uh Like, I mean, that just sparked something in them that like, this is happening. So he, they place an ad in the Virgin Records shop that they all go in and out of. Okay. Ian Kerr's response to that. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, yeah, we've seen you around. We know you. Don't audition him. Doesn't know if he can sing. They're just like, yeah, you. Okay, come on yeah. up. It and doesn't matter if you can sing. We're playing punk. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Can you breathe? He said that uh, as long as we got along with people, then it was cool. Right. So they went through a few drummers. This th- is the great story. I was going to say, I think they were, it was their third drummer, but you, you tell me the story. Okay, so here's the deal. Joy Division as a band debuts May 29th, 1977. In June of 1977, they decide, we're going to replace our drummer. <laughs> right. Okay? So they bring in this guy named Steve Brotherdale. Well, after a few gigs, they decide that they don't like him. This guy is not fitting. He's just a pain in the butt, and we don't like him. What's his name? Steve Brotherdale. Okay. Not David Coverdale. That's where, that's where my head went. Yeah, okay. keep going. Steve Brotherdale. So while they're driving, they're all in a car, and they decide, we're going to fire this guy. Yeah. So they uh, they pull over, and one guy's like, hey, Steve, I think we got a flat tire. Will you, <laughs> will you step out and check on it? So Steve gets out of the car, and when he gets out of the car, they drive off. They're like, we're out of here. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. That is fantastic. Yeah, you know, sometimes you got to take the problem from the side, you know. <laughs> So finally, they end up with their third drummer, who sticks, and that's Stephen Morris. And by that Did time, they call him Sticks, or was because <laughs> that's a great nickname Probably. for a drummer. It's perfect. It's perfect, really. <laughs> anyway, um, Stephen Morris sticks, but the band name doesn't. They got to get rid of Warsaw, right? And so they go with a different name, Joy Division. Very happy sounding name. It's happy sounding, yeah, yeah. So they get this from a 1955 novel called House of Dolls. And Joy Division refers to this special section of prostitutes or prisoners (laughs) from the Auschwitz war camp in Nazi Germany where the Nazi soldiers would go to have a good time. So they would keep woman prisoners on the side as the quote unquote Joy Division. so happy no not so happy basically sex slaves for the soldiers and they would also use these women for favored prisoners wow horrible yeah joy division okay so that's less happy uh yeah yeah it's a good punk name right yeah it's it's nirvana right right it's it's not butthole surfers it's not Nirvana, that's the a buzz good I mean, it's, yeah. it's something that you hear and it sounds nice, but then when you find out the history, you're like, ooh, right. this is unpleasant. So January 25th, 1978, Joy Division plays its first gig. Mm-hmm. And they sort of you know work their way around. They begin their climb. Yeah. When 1979 rolls around, they record their very first album. Yeah, so this is this is huge because this is Tony Wilson's concept, The Factory. And I say concept because it started out as actually a club. And then ultimately that transitioned into a record label. And it was kind of neat how he did stuff. Like the contract that he signed with the Joy Division guys, he signed in his own blood. Like, what? no kidding. Because it was like on a napkin. And basically the idea was, I'm not... 
as the record label guy, I'm not going to own your music. I'm not going to influence your music. That is your call. Wow. You are the one who is in charge of that. I'm not going to own it. I'm just going to be the one that's in charge of the business side of things. And what's on the business side of things, I'm in charge of, not you. And so listen to some of the bands that he was the manager of. They're like, well, yeah, that sounds really open-minded. But a lot of the times that meant when it got to something that we weren't happy about, he'd, he'd say, well, you know what you can do. That was a nice way to say either it's going to be this way or you can go f off because you aren't connected to me. You wow. don't have to you don't have to stay here. You can go. You can go somewhere else and do something else if you want to. Now Joy Division was a different I mean they it was they still had the same contract, but they were the bread and butter of the factory record label. So now that they've decided to record the album, right. they have to have a producer. And so the guy that they get to come be their producer is a guy named Martin Hannett. Okay. He had gone by the name Martin Zero before and he was he had produced one record okay but you know why he was important to these guys no because he was in manchester okay. he was like the only record producer in manchester but he had produced the buzzcocks first ep called spiral scratch okay and so they're like okay martin you're gonna be our producer we've got joy division over here because they are the most talented band that we have let's put this record together okay now, here's here's where a bit of magic happens, okay? Joy Division didn't really sound like Joy Division until Martin Hannett put his fingers into their pie, right? Okay. And people would talk about how difficult it was to work with Martin Hannett. Like, he said, I saw one guy who was like, it didn't matter how long you've been together. Four weeks, 40 years, within three days of working with Martin Hannett, he had everybody at each other's throat. <laughs> that was what he thought was the way to produce record was to get everybody mad. And the guy he wanted to make the maddest was the drummer. Because the madder he is, the harder he hits the drums. Okay, I can see that. There's know? there's a movie that's come out that details the rise and fall of Factory Records called, I think it's like 24-Hour Party Machine or something like that. Okay. But Andy Serkis plays the part of Martin Hannett, and he's awesome. <laughs> he's so good as just this total jerk face guy. But he's a guy who knows what he is doing. Uh -huh. And so he takes these guys. He takes Joy Division, who has this standard rock beat the two and four rock beat. And he's like, we're not doing that. We're doing a disco beat. And they're like, what? He's oh, like, wow. no, we're doing a disco beat on this one. And he used loops that we've talked about before, which was rare in the 70s. He was doing all kinds of these innovative things with echoes and ambient sound. And he is the one that made them sound. And they hated it. They hated the way they sounded for that first LP, but it made them who they are. And it made them relevant. They became like the definitive post-punk band in the late 70s. It's incredible. It's incredible. So he treated it like he owned the factory and the band members were the drones, right? Right. But he was inspired by a few things that we've talked about before, right? Yeah, okay. Number one, Krautrock. Yes! We, we keep about, talking about Krautrock. We this talk is a weird about, thing. Yeah, so it, we mentioned it, if, and dear listener, if you're not familiar with us talking about it, it was on one of our Patreon episodes. But Keith Forsey, the guy who wrote Don't You Forget About Me, That's right. was a prominent Krautrock guy who worked with Giorgio Moroder after that, worked with Donna Summer, which we'll talk a little bit about New Order after this, and Donna Summer was a big factor in that, right? Yeah. So he's inspired by Krautrock. 
he's inspired by Brian Eno, who, of course, is no working with David Bowie at that point, And they're making Low and Heroes with that ambient sound. And then Key, his idol that we talked about on our Dirty Dancing episode, Mr. Phil Spector. Oh, yeah, that he, all makes sense. He totally wanted to be the Phil Spector of the post-punk scene. And he, I think, achieved it. Hey, so, you know what? Yeah. We keep coming in contact with Phil Spector, mm-hmm. and Giorgio Moroder is all over the place. Right. This is the guy that gave us the Top Gun soundtrack. Yeah, the never-ending story, which will come up later. And Flashdance. Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah, all He's over, all the, over place. the place. All over the place. So, Joy Division starts to tour Europe in early 1980. Well, here's the problem. They start to realize Ian Curtis has got epilepsy. And this was kind of a big, big deal anyway, but it was a bigger deal for him because in his past, he had actually worked in a hospital with epileptic patients. Like, Joy Division has a song called She's Out of Control, and people thought, well, he's talking about his condition. No, he was actually talking about a female patient at the place that he worked who he had seen go into these epileptic fits, and now he's getting the news, hey, you have this, and you can't be around loud music, you can't do drugs, you can't stay up late, you can't drink. The doctor's like, oh, by the way, what do you do? And he's like... Oh, I'm a librarian. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because you can't, you know. What do you say to that? Right. I, I'm a rock musician who, you know, we crank it up and have lights everywhere. Right. And in fact, he had special conditions. Like, he, they couldn't shoot the lights at him. Yeah. Or he'd have a seizure. Yeah. No, they literally, like, guys, the background crew turned on the strobes at one point during one of their concerts. And, I mean, he flat out he, fell backwards into the drums. Yeah, he did. He did. He had two grand mall seizures in early 1980. Yeah. And we, we actually talked about the grand mall seizure that Tina Marie yeah. experienced experienced during the Top Gun episode. And a grand mal seizure, if you don't know, that's like laying on the ground shaking. You have no sort of awareness, can't do anything, you know. Right. And if you've seen any videos of Ian Curtis performing, he has this very unique dancing style, which looks like an epileptic seizure. I mean, his eyes are big, his face is kind of like dumbfounded, and he's throwing his arms around like a fit. And so I could see how somebody was like, oh, it's just his way of dancing when he's having these seizures. He would have seizures on stage and people think, oh, look at him, man. He's really passionate. He's really into it. (laughs) Right. No. It's crazy. Yeah. So anyway, he... You know, the lack of sleep, the long hours, you know, the seizures on stage, it, it, it was embarrassing. Yeah. He was embarrassed and ashamed. And he had also at this point fallen in love with this Belgian journalist named Anika Nore. And she actually later on went and formed the Belgian arm of the factory. So that's kind of a weird coincidence. Okay. Um, but he had developed deep feelings for her. She would later on say it was all platonic. I guess we should say he was married at the time. Yeah. His to a wife, different woman. <laughs> his wife did not believe it was platonic. Let's back up just a second. He yeah. got married at 19, yeah. worked for the government, had a boring life. Yeah. He and his wife, you know, struggled to make it. Yeah. And then on the side, he's a punk rocker. Right. You know, he aspired to be a musician. Yeah. And then when he finally achieves it, falls in love with another woman, but he doesn't want to give up his wife and feels guilty. And I don't want to give up my girlfriend. I don't want to give up my wife. I kind of want to have both. And yeah. And she gives, I mean, she files for divorce and she gives him an ultimatum and says, you cannot have any more contact with her. If you have more contact with her, we're done. And that's it. I'm just, there's no other way about this. You have to sever all contact with her. Then on top of all of those other stressors, the epilepsy, the unrequited love or love affair, whatever it might've been. Sure. They also find out they're about to go to North America for a tour of the United States. Right. Big deal. Yeah. And the rest of the band is elated. It's two big problems. 
Number one, he's worried about how the crowds are going to treat him if he's going to have an epileptic seizure on stage because Americans are not the nicest people in, at concerts, right? right? I mean, we've talked about Prince and what, what people did when he appeared. Yeah. And he's worried about that. And then he's also deathly afraid of flying. Like he had literally talked about, how do I get there by boat? Can I, can I just take a boat over to America? Wow. But anyway, all of those things are coming down hard upon his head. So he had attempted suicide when he was 16 years old by overdosing on medication that he got his hands on. Yep. They actually pumped his stomach. Yeah. Well, all these stressors start to kind of rear their ugly head and people around him think, eh, yeah, he's stressed out, but he's not really in danger. Right. Right. I mean, you listen to people talk about him. They're like, everybody thinks, you know, who doesn't know him and knows what happened, thinks he's this kind of dark, moody guy. And he wasn't. He was a guy who cut up and joked and played pool and drank with the boys. He's just a regular bloke is the thing you hear most often. But like so many regular blokes, people didn't know the demons that he was truly dealing with. Yeah. So he was talking to his wife and he said, please stay with me tonight. Uh-huh. And she felt like she had to stay with him or else who knows what would have happened. Right. Well, she stayed with him and then he told her to go away. Yeah. And don't come back. Yeah. And then while she was gone, on April 7th, 1980, he hanged himself. Yeah. Early morning hours. So according to Tony Wilson, before he did this, he did two things. He watched a movie and he listened to an album. The movie he watched is a movie called Strozek. Okay. 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 It's by Werner Herzog. Okay. Famous director. Okay. But one of his earlier like, 70s movies. Okay. I took a look at this movie. So here's the, here's the plot line of the movie. Musician gets out of jail starts dating a prostitute, gets beaten severely. The prostitute leaves in a car and never comes back. And then he goes and kills himself. Does that sound familiar at all? It sounds like the Reagan youth story. It sounds like the Reagan youth story, except that the Reagan youth thing didn't happen. wouldn't happen for another decade. I yeah, know, like right? Another, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was like, oh my gosh. Wow. And I was just like, whoa, this is nuts. Then the album that he listened to, we talked about in our last episode. It was the one that David Bowie produced for Iggy Pop called The Idiot. But you think, okay, so weird coincidence. Sure. Right. The album The Idiot got its title from a Russian novel. It's about an epileptic prince and there's an attempted suicide. What? In the book. Get out of town. Where are you going to get that information? I don't know what the deal is with the songs that they're picking for Stranger Things. Right. But why is it that suicide seems to run a thread through all of them? That's just, it's weird. It's crazy. It is very, very weird. This season alone, just on this series, we've talked about murder. We've talked about suicide. We've talked about kidnapping. Hang glider accidents. Hang glider accidents. Two of them. I know, right? And Christmas songs. Yeah, and Christmas songs, right. Hey, we got blocked on Facebook because we were talking about these (laughs) things. Yeah, we're like, hey, we're going to talk about suicide and murder and (laughs) drugs, LSD. And they're like, nope. The Zuckerbergs shut us down. Yeah, they did. Hard. We got went to Facebook jail over this. Stranger Things, it's not us, all right? Blame blame Nora Felder. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so he commits suicide right... I mean, literally, they're supposed to fly out the next day. The next day. The next day. And so their world is coming (laughs) to a crashing halt. Their lead singer is dead. 
they have to go to North America to tour. How are they going to do it? Right. Are you really going to start a new band? Yes. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about it in just a second, but I hate to say it. We've gone this far, and we have not yet said what the song is I know. or where it appears in the episode. Oh my gosh, yes. So, the Joy Division song that we are going to talk about is Atmosphere. not on one of their two albums that the band released. Yeah. It came out as a single after Unknown Pleasures, but before Closer. Okay. And it came out exactly two months before Ian Curtis hanged himself. Interesting. March 18th. Now, obviously, record stores get it earlier than that. Okay. I mentioned in one of our episodes recently that James Buckley pointed out that it would not be the last mention of Suicide or John Peel. John Peel played this song for the first time on his show on March 11th, a week before its release, 1980. The next day, he played the B-side, which is Dead Souls, right. which is also a fantastic song and one that I will talk about in our next episode a little bit. Okay. If you don't know Dead Souls from Joy Division, if you've seen the movie The Crow, Nine Inch Nails covers that song. It's the scene where Eric Draven is running from rooftop to rooftop, and it is, it's intense, and it's awesome, and it's a great cover of that song. It's entrancing, it's beautiful, and I will say now for our listeners the same thing that I say, said to James when I called them to ask him what the appeal of Joy Division was. I don't really like this guy's voice. Yeah, you and I talked about this, and he's been dead and buried for 42 years now, so yeah. we can kind of so, discuss it not now. Not too soon. All right. <laughs> it's interesting. It's deep. It's kind of nasally, but it sounds... It's not my it's not my taste. Even though it's not my taste, I find myself singing the song in that the song's voice. Song's great. Like I, I I'm wandering around throughout my day and, and I'll just be I'll just start singing the lyrics to that song. It's just it's not a pretty voice to listen to, but it does something that hooks it hooks you in. And the music is awesome. It's I love it. It's very it sets the tone. Yeah. So I don't think we mentioned it, but this song comes in at Three minutes and 52 seconds That's right. into the episode. Right. As you recall, the end of the last episode is when they discovered what appeared to be the body of Will Byers. And this one, the name of this episode is The Body because it's all this question of, is this really the body, right? Mm -hmm. But the beginning of the episode is obvious this kind of, you know, like you've been hit in the head, muted, in shock, ambient noise going on for the first nearly four minutes as Jim is trying to tell Joyce that they've found Will's body and that she's got to understand that he's really dead and he understands why she's acting the way she is and believes he's still alive. And he went through the same thing with his daughter. And then he leaves and that's when this song thumps in and... 
what a crazy, like, I don't even understand the meaning of the scene, but she's going out to the shed and she's getting in an axe. Right. And what's going to happen, we don't know, but the, this music playing in the background of that scene, it intensifies it. It's magnificent. Yeah. Perfect, perfect song for that moment. It's great. It's great. And is the body Will? Is it not Will? We're not sure. Spoiler alert, it's not Will. <laughs> well, the, guy, the actor has been in all of the following seasons. <laughs> I think everybody can guess that one, right? Yes. So we both like the song. Yeah. yeah. Not real high on his voice. But still the music. I'll listen to this. Here's the thing. Yeah. And, and we're going to just briefly touch on this. Mm-hmm. Once Ian Curtis dies, the rest of the group pulls themselves together mm-hmm. and says, I guess we need a new singer. Let's change the name and move on to something else. Yeah. And they become New Order. Yeah. And we will be talking about them on our next episode. Right. So hold that thought till next time. Stick a pin in it. We got some fun stuff for you for New Order. I will just tell you, they did after his death, which like I said, it was only two months later, they re-released this song and they changed the B-side from Dead Souls, understandable, to She's Lost Control, which is still, I mean, that's the song that everybody's like, did he write this about himself? That's the seizure song, right? Yeah, it's the seizure song. So I can understand why you don't want Dead Souls as your B-side on the two-month-old single that the guy just killed himself. Right. But why'd they pick... Other than it's it's also probably a, a single-worthy song. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Short-lived Joy Division makes a big impact. Starts a lot of bands. Yeah. Impacts the 80s, really. Yeah. Okay. Real quick, there is actually a music video for this song. Did you know that? No, I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, so it it's, like? it's weird. It's very weird. It didn't get released. They filmed it early on, but it didn't get released until this song was re-released back in 1988. And it's like bizarre. It's black and white. It's got these hooded, cloaked, very strange video. But it fits the tone of the song. For sure. Okay. So this song reached the top of the UK indie chart in October of 1980, hit the number two spot on that same chart when they re-released it in 1988. Okay, D, so you mentioned John Peel's BBC radio program. Mm -hmm. Listen to this little nugget. In 2000, the song Atmosphere was voted greatest song of the millennium by his listeners. That's good. They used this song. I talked about the movie that they had made about Tony Wilson, the record label journalist right. guy called 24 Hour Party People. They used this song right after the scene where Ian Curtis commits suicide. They used this song at the end of his biopic, which was called Control. And then when Tony Wilson, the real person, actually died, they played it at his funeral. So this, I, I think for Joy Division fans, this is a this is the one top of the list song for sure. Cool. Awesome. Uh, All right. That does it for the song that's at the very beginning. There's only one other song in this episode for us to talk about. And that is... Color Dreams by The Deep. Have you heard of The Deep? Never. No. And there's a reason for that. This is the only album they made. Right. And they only got together to make the album. They didn't tour as a group. And this song comes in in the episode. What what was our time signature on that Time one? signature, 34 minutes and three seconds. Right. So it's the scene where Hopper is talking to the state trooper who found Will's supposed body. So they're in a bar. They're having a drink. He's questioning the guy, acting like a good guy until the, he calls him out on the lie. And the guy's like, you know, thanks for running the game, dick. Right. right. 
And then the next scene, Hopper has beaten the crap out of the guy in the alley to get information from him. And that's when we find out it was a setup. Right. The song that's playing, Color Dreams, you can't hear it. I mean, you can hear a little twinkling of it, but not only are both of the guys talking throughout the scene, but you've got the game playing throughout the scene. So you've got announcing going on, two guys talking, and in the very limited background, you can hear the jukebox playing this song. Now, this song was by The Deep. You got who our founder of The Deep is? Rusty Evans. Rusty Evans. World famous Rusty Evans. (laughs) Rock star extraordinaire. He's the only guy who really had a career before they made this album. Right. And basically what happened was he was just kind of, of a folk music guy, like almost rockabilly stuff. Yes. And he says to his buddy Marcus Barkin, Yes. Hey, let's go record a psychedelic album. And the guy's like, a what? Right. And so for 1200 bucks, they get some other musicians around and they go to this place to record this album. But it's important in musical history because it is the first album that has the word psychedelic in the title. Okay, so this is a series of bad decisions, in my opinion, okay? <laughs> okay? So one guy who can play guitar and can sing goes to his buddy and says, Hey, let's produce this psychedelic album. Nobody knows what that means yet. It's literally the first album with the word psychedelic in the title. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, it's going to be great. Psychedelic moods, right? Psych- psychedelic moods, that's right. Yeah. So we're going to drive from New York to Philadelphia. We'll write music on the way. We'll figure it out as we go. They go, 1,200 bucks, which that's cheap even for cheap albums back then. Yeah. They spend four days on it. One of the session guys they bring in to play the drums, he quits midstream. And it's supposed to be kind of like an LSD trip is the idea of the psychedelic. That's right. So I wonder what they used for inspiration for that. Coca-Cola. I mean, just imagine that you're like, okay, we're gonna we're getting hired for like a three day gig. Okay, oh, we gotta drop acid and then we play. This yeah. sounds like a great idea. Yeah, sure. Well, it worked for people who were doing stuff later on. It, it did. It's not as though that wasn't unsuccessful. Right. But in this particular instance, it was not successful. They would later go on. I think maybe a couple of the guys played together again. They changed their name. The next album was called Psychedelic Soul with. <laughs> P-S-O-U-L. How funny is that? It's clever. Yeah. And so they were, you know, again, an unsuccessful album. They they were doing stuff that nobody was interested in. And that's probably how this song ended up in the background of a Stranger Things episode is it was cheap. Nobody cared. So you can get it cheap. That's very true. And that's why it's it's in there. But the producer, Mark Birkin, when they got done with it, he sent it to the publisher for the Beatles. Oh, okay. Guy named yeah. Dick James. Yeah. And Dick James is like, yeah, you know, I'll uh, I'll pay you guys to distribute this. And they're like, no way, man. This is going to be a hit. We don't need your help. <laughs> I mean, I know you're with the Beatles and everything, oh, but we got gosh. this. Right. Yeah. What? That's great. This, this yeah. goes along with the decisions to write songs and sleep in the studio and all that stuff. Yeah. Right. Could have been much bigger. Okay. So I told you I had a special little nugget on this one. Yes, I'm ready. You ready? Yes. Okay. So Marcus Sparkin, the producer, the guy who Rusty Evans talked into doing this. Right. He would go on to be the music supervisor in a show that you know and love that the first season was directed by Richard Donner, which we talked about in our Lethal Weapon episode. (laughs) Stop it. He was the musical director for the Banana Splits Adventure Hour. That is mind-blowing. There you go. I'd like to have at least one interesting thing to say about the song. But anyway, so boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, go ahead. I was just going to say, one banana, two banana, three (laughs) banana, four. 
Yeah. I love the banana splits. Yeah, this is a little before my time. You're, you're older than me. I mean, I watched this in my, you know, underoos at my grandma's <laughs> house, so. There's a mental picture I don't need. <laughs> Incredible Hulk underoos, everyone. Okay, guys, that does it for this episode. We are taking a bit of a break. we got some catching up to do, and we want to do a re-release. This month is the month two years ago that we lost dear Eddie Van Halen, so we are bringing you a return of our three original episodes on Van Halen and Van Hagar. That will be over the next three weeks, and then we'll be back with you for more exciting stuff. You know, we haven't done a great job of explaining ourselves, because I've had more than, I've had four or five or six people say, are you guys going to do like the entire run of Stranger Things? No. We're just going through season one. So this is episode four. Put cap on this. We'll do five, six, seven, and eight, and then we'll be back into our regular rotation for season there you go. How about that? Season four of us. Season not, four of us. Not a stranger thing. Not a stranger thing. That's yeah. right. Because why would we skip two and three? We've been doing this for three years, dude. That's crazy. It's awesome. Yep. Love you guys. Thank you so much for the support. We will see you next week. See you guys.